This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Director of Development International Programs, Kate O'Neill. Thank you. I'm Kate O'Neill, representing the Office of Development, and I'm very pleased to welcome everyone here tonight. We appreciate such strong interest in RAND's Security 2040 initiative. For those of you who are new to RAND, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization, and we are celebrating our 70th anniversary this May. All right. <laughs> Since our founding, RAND has been at the forefront of some of society's most complex public policy challenges. In an era of unprecedented speed, where policy often cannot keep up with societal and technological advances, we aim beyond the sight lines to envision and shape a safer and more prosperous future for all. Tonight, I have the pleasure of introducing Andrew Parasoliti, director of RAND Center for Global Risk and Security. Andrew leads multidisciplinary research and policy analysis dealing with systemic risks to global security. The center draws upon RAND's unparalleled expertise to complement and expand RAND research in many fields, including security, economics, health, and technology. At this point, I'd like to turn the program over to Andrew, and he will talk about the inspiration behind RAND's Security 2040 initiative and many of the people behind the project. Thank you, Kate, and welcome, everybody. Two years ago, RAND CEO and President Michael Rich came to me with a very RAND challenge. What does it mean, he asked, and what does it take to be safe and secure in the year 2040? From its inception at the onset of the Cold War, RAND has been tasked with the greatest national security challenges of our time. When RAND was founded in 1948, 70 years ago, that task was developing a strategy for survival in the era of nuclear weapons. The nuclear era was new and frightening, especially as Russia and then China, and along with other countries, with the United States, possessed the most dangerous weapons in human history capable of civilizational destruction. Strategy in the nuclear era required innovation and creativity in analysis because the stakes were never higher. And the threat was really existential, an over and misused word, but in this case, it was spot on. And Rand didn't just go to the usual well of national security experts. We employed engineers, statisticians, mathematicians, economists, setting a trend and a standard for multidisciplinary analysis and methodological rigor. And Rand's contribution to nuclear strategy, as many of you know, have been foundational for US national security and nuclear force posture. Now in picking up Michael Rich's challenge, we have undertaken a Rand-wide effort managed by the Center for Global Risk and Security 
to probe what security will mean in 2040 and what it's going to take to make us secure in the coming decades. The initiative is not what I would call a national security inbox exercise. Tonight, we will not be discussing, I don't think, the U.S.-China trade war, NATO, the Trump-Kim summit, the Iran nuclear deal, or sanctions on Russia, except maybe at the margins. These are all important questions which our RAND colleagues and many of us who will be speaking tonight are working on every day here at RAND for our government sponsors and clients. But instead, Security 2040, as we have come to call it, is about those perils and opportunities over the horizon, those of the coming decades that cross and blur the lines of conventional notions of personal, domestic, and international security, and that are connected to technological, social, economic, environmental, and demographic trends and disruptions. Some of these may be foreseen, some will be surprises. These new approaches to security will be influenced by the experience of uh, a millennial cohort who didn't grow up with a morning newspaper collecting telephone messages at the hotel reception desk or fear of nuclear annihilation, as those of us in the boomer cohort did. There may be something old and something new in this approach to Security 2040. For example, one of our teams you will hear about will brief us on how AI may be able to destabilize the nuclear balance. Surveillance technologies make us safer. Commercial technologies allow us to move faster. But what about the cost to privacy? And is there a trade-off between community and citizenship and one's virtual and online networks, which in a political sense sometimes seem to be driving us toward our respective camps rather than bringing us together. In implementing Security 2040, we placed no constraints on the definition of security, and true to Rand's tradition, gave priority to researchers from behavioral science, engineering, economics, and political science as well. This approach emphasizes RAND's unmatched, multidisciplinary, and methodological depth and range to get at not just what the issues are, but how we think about those issues and how we may need to reconceptualize the very nature of security in the coming decades. So you may notice an unusual and deliberate degree of diversity in the disciplinary backgrounds of our analysts here tonight, quite different, I think, than what you might experience at a security program at other think tanks. And as it was in the early days of RANDs, our explorations into security trends is not really the stuff of uh, futurists or punditry, chasing trends and sound bites in the latest fad, but RAND-style research based on the most demanding quality assurance process in the business, as you will see from the presentations tonight and in the research reports which comprise Security 2040. Tonight's event is our formal launch of Security 2040. We're just getting started. As you can see from brochure, which I hope you'll pick up outside, which summarizes the presentations you'll hear tonight and lists the upcoming projects, there's a lot more to come. 
Before I introduce my colleagues, I'd like to thank Michael Rich, who's not here with us tonight, but he supported this RAND-initiated research project and really is, uh, came to us with the big question, which has uh, guided us in this exploration. The advisory board of the Center for Global Risk and Security for their intellectual and philanthropic support. And let me call out board members Chris Varelis and Edie Rodriguez, who are here with us this evening. And in addition to our research teams, this was uh, very much a RAND-wide effort. And I'd like to thank uh, my colleagues here tonight who have played such a large part in this effort and just mention Greg Bauman, Amy Grace Donahue, Lori Matsunaga, Robin Miley, Angel O'Mahony, Kate O'Neill, Stephen Popper, and Aaron Smith. And please continue to follow Security 2040. We've got a new website, uh, lots of activity on our RAND and Twitter accounts as well. So with that, let me ask our speakers to take their seats on the stage. So our first presentation deals with the relationship of artificial intelligence to nuclear deterrence. Can AI upset the nuclear balance, which have prevented the use of nuclear weapons for over 70 years? Our team includes Edward Geist, who is a historian and specialist in Russian politics and nuclear strategy, and Andrew Lone, an electrical engineer with a background in physics and whose research at RAND has focused on AI and cybersecurity. In September of last year, Russian President Vladimir Putin commented in a speech that artificial intelligence is the future. And after a few uh, comments about the colossal opportunities and threats that this technology might pose, concluded on the ominous note that whoever uh, becomes a leader in this sphere will become the ruler of the world. And while Putin's, this particular speech uh, by President Putin did not comment on the specific military and strategic dimensions of uh, artificial intelligence, the Russian government's genuine commitment to them was reflected by a speech that he gave at the beginning of last month, in which he declared the uh, Russian development of an a generation of exotic new strategic nuclear delivery platforms, including an intercontinental nuclear-powered torpedo ostensibly to carry a uh, extremely large yield 100-megaton warhead that are only feasible because of advancements in artificial intelligence. So how might these new developments impact uh, nuclear strategy? Well, nuclear strategy is hard because nuclear strategy is about more than just deterrence. So the nuclear strategy, of course, has a coercive aspect not on top of deterrence, which is the dissuasion of uh, an adversary from attacking through the use of a retaliatory threat. Basically, well, if you attack us, we will nuke you back. There's also compellence, which, of course, we do not engage in but need to worry about adversaries potentially engaging in. That is using threats to force the, the adversary to do something that they don't want to do. But where it starts getting uh, the particularly fraught is with assurance. So this is where we are trying to convince our allies that our deterrent is good enough to prevent the adversary not merely from attacking us, but from attacking them as well. 
And the reason that it's so difficult to make assurance credible is because we're essentially promising to do things like trading a Boston for Berlin. And how good do your forces have to be in order to convince your uh, uh, worried allies that your deterrent is good enough to deter the adversary from doing something other than attacking you directly? And finally, once you've taken the steps that are necessary for assurance, there's reassurance, which is convincing the adversary that all of the steps that you've taken so far do not imply that you're preparing to attack them. That as long as you actually, if they, as long as they actually do or refrain from the provocations that you're concerned about, that you will not attack. So how might this play out in practice? So the first uh, element of uh, nuclear strategy, of course, is deterrence. And the primary requirement for deterrence is something called assured retaliation. Basically that the, the adversary has to believe that no matter how competent that their attack was, there will always be retaliation. So the way that we accomplish this in practice is through uh, what are called uh, survivable retaliatory forces. So these are things like nuclear missile submarines. Uh, in Russia and China, they have land mobile ICBMs that they use for this. Basically, the idea is that these things survive via stealth. So the, basically, we don't know where they are to target them. And so the, there's always going to be at least some of them, and probably most of them will survive. So... The temptation, however, is to try and find these things, to make them targetable in order to potentially gain political leverage over the adversary or possibly as a competitive strategy to try and cause them to bankrupt themselves to trying to make them more secure. So the way that the, during the Cold War, both uh, the United States and the Soviet Union actually pursued this kind of capability. During that era, like the technology just wasn't there, but today artificial intelligence might make it practical. And in fact, the, the Russians and the Chinese have expressed their uh, what appear to be very genuine concerns that the United States might be trying to pursue this kind of technology. And the sorts of extreme uh, uh, new nuclear uh, strategic systems that Putin announced last month are actually a reflection of those kinds of fears. But, of course, the, the challenges that artificial intelligence poses to nuclear strategy go well beyond just the, this notion of, of threatening the survivability of retaliatory forces, as my uh, colleague uh, uh, Drew Lone will explain. Right. So Edward, as a nuclear strategist and historian, rarely tells good news stories. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm going to continue that trend here, but I'm going to go back a little bit first. <laughs> uh, so uh, a lot of people... Th- can think of nuclear war and, and all of the conditions that he laid out as a um, in, in in a game like framework and uh, it, it uh, prompted the the invention or a growth of game theory and war gaming uh, both of those uh, uh, ran played a, a big role in um, we also have seen artificial intelligence make make uh, large strides in game playing from from famously chess. Uh, Back a couple decades ago, and and more recently with AlphaGo, which is a uh, with AlphaGo and AlphaGo Zero, which are these uh, Google programs that that have uh, mastered, uh, they're able to beat the the world's best professionals in this game, which is more complex, much more complex than than chess was. It has to go about it in a different way. Um, that's a little bit more like, like an intuitive approach, and not just a mapping out possible moves approach. Um, but even this game, uh, it has complete information. Both players know everything about all of the moves at the, at, and all of the states that you're in and what all of the rules are. Um, 
There's also been slightly less famous some progress in missing information or partial information games that involve bluffing, which obviously has analogs to, to nuclear war as well. Uh, now AI beats professional players at poker, where, where they don't know what the, what the opponent is holding, uh, much like you might expect in nuclear war. There's also progress in, in uh, more complex games that, that uh, like StarCraft, where, where the moves aren't even necessarily specified, and, um, but, but no... Uh, no superhuman performance there yet. However, we could imagine that that progress will be made. There's certainly incentive and, and economic reason to do so. The the concern that we have is if if this progress continues, you could uh, imagine a time, and not too long in the future, perhaps in the 2040 timeline, where some of these machines are able to play war games or simulations in in an environment like a rand uh, a, a rand lab and and perhaps beat some of the, the human performers. In that case, do the, do the generals need to listen to what the machine is saying about escalation decisions, where to mobilize troops, uh, what messaging to send at, at different times regard, regarding escalation or even launch? Uh, that's that's a, a dangerous concern and, um, and uh, one that, that requires a, a lot of careful consideration because very few of the other applications of artificial intelligence that we're getting comfortable with, like self-driving vehicles or, or, or making map decisions or tagging our friends, involve an adversary who's trying to, to subvert your, your activities. Um, we have to, to wrap up pretty quickly, but uh, uh, artificial intelligence and nuclear war is, has been a pop fiction cliche for, for decades, from, from Skynet being self-aware or, or Whopper in war games um, but we think that, that although these are important considerations, uh, 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 an intelligence that could take over your nuclear arsenal and launch, it's, it's kind of missing the important points. And, and what we've discussed today are a couple of ways that, that artificial intelligence progress over the next couple decades could upend our nuclear stability without requiring the types of advances that, that pop fiction does. We need to start thinking about what those ways are that don't require such giant leaps in technology and so that we can uh, decide what we need to do to fix them. All right. Thank you. The next team asks how the widespread commercialization of 3D printing or additive manufacturing, which can bring to society many benefits, less consumer goods, potential medical breakthroughs, but could also enable terrorists and criminals to custom print a range of weapons from handguns to drones. Our team includes Trevor Johnston, the political scientist specializing in conflict and development issues, Troy Smith, a microeconomist, and Luke Irwin, a party Rand a PhD student working on health, labor, and security issues. Good evening. First, added manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, is a variety of processes by which a digital design is transformed into a three-dimensional object in the real world, made out of plastics, metals, polymers, or pretty much anything you can think of. But let's unpack that definition a little bit. There are three parts. The printer, the physical machine. This is what takes in the inputs, takes in the digital design, and prints things. It extrudes the materials or it puts it in layer by layer. Second, is the digital design itself or the software that's used to create it. So this is a file on your computer that can be turned into something, changing bits, ones and zeros, into atoms, something in the physical world. And third is the materials themselves, the, the plastics, the polymers, even chocolate. Anything that you can imagine pushing out of a nozzle can be turned into a 3D object. 
In our research into this new technology, we have found uh, four trends that we believe will continue to shape the trajectory of these, this uh, technology as we go into the future. The first of them is printing with multiple materials. Historically, printers weren't very good at using multiple materials. They used one material at a time, and so the products that they came out with were unfinished. They had to be, have a human come into the loop and finish them off, polish them, build them, and combine them with other things, which kind of made sure that there was always something that the human was doing. As the technology has advanced, we found that we can print with more materials to create new and more complex objects that are more finished. The, the time between actually the, the printer producing an object and when it can be used is shrinking and taking the human out of the loop. The second trend we found is that there's an ability of machines to self-replicate. When they have all this variety of things that they can create, they can start to build their own parts, and they're almost to the point where they can completely make themselves. This suggests that uh, the traditional things that we've used to limit potentially dangerous objects like point-of-sale controls aren't going to work anymore when your neighbor can print your printer for you. The third uh, trend we've noticed that uh, is the sourcing of materials from remote and inhospitable environments like the desert or even the moon. This means that machines are more mobile now. They don't have to be tied to a potentially obsolete supply chain anymore because they can get exactly what they need to build their objects from wherever they are. And finally, there's the ability of size with additive manufacturing machines. Some uh, printers are now large enough to print buildings or even skyscrapers, and some are getting so small and precise they can print individual human tissues personalized for people. All of these things together point out that there are two big trends. One, that the barriers to obtaining and using a printer are lowering. It's easier and easier all the time. And second, they're able to create new and more complex objects all the time. So in order to look at what this technology might look like and what this might mean in 2040, we, taught, we convened a workshop of experts and also did a lot of interviews. So we talked to industry professionals, security experts, and other stakeholders. And one of the questions we asked all of them was, what is the industry that is most likely to be disrupted by additive manufacturing, and what is the industry that's likely to be least disrupted by additive manufacturing? Interestingly, we found that there was no consensus on this. In fact, some of the experts said that healthcare, for instance, was one of the sectors to be most likely disrupted, and other experts said that the industry to be that would be the least likely disrupted would be healthcare. So we thought about this a little bit, and we thought that maybe what's going on here is that they're looking at different aspects of this. So people that thought that it would be most likely to be, be disrupted, maybe maybe they were focusing on things like printing organs or printing prosthetics or other medical devices, whereas people that thought that it would be the least likely to be disrupted, potentially they were thinking of other aspects of healthcare, such as the patient-doctor relationship. So in order to, to think more clearly about these different issues, we came up with this schematic, schematic of dimensions of disruption. So on the vertical axis, we have highly customized, and on the horizontal axis, we have complexity. So you can map products, companies, industries on, on these uh, diagonals, and then we can see what the potential is that they'll be disrupted by added manufacturing. For instance, we have a toothbrush, so a toothbrush is not highly customized generally. It's also uh, not very complex. So things like this probably for the foreseeable future will be in the purview of traditional man manufacturing. However, things like human organs, they would be highly customized and also very, very complex. So something like that would be a good candidate for additive manufacturing. 
The red line here is the frontier of cost and accessibility. So as the technology progresses, more and more companies, more and more products, more and more industries will be able to be uh, made through additive manufacturing, and potentially that will be cheaper than making them the, the traditional ways that we've done. So this red line, as time goes on, as the technology will, gets better, will move to the right um, and down in here. The other interesting thing is that some products that today are not produced by additive manufacturing potentially could be. So if you think about running shoes, today they're not customized, but in the near future, they could be highly customized and we could actually print out a running shoe that fit your exact foot for you in order for you to, to run with. These disruptions will have various implications for the future threat environment. So as Luke mentioned earlier, self-replicating machines will lead to increasing proliferation of printers and greater access to this technology. And as such, uh, we can imagine that in the future, these point-of-sale controls over firearms um, and other forms of weapons um, are going to become far less effective. Uh, but beyond these small arms, we can also imagine that additive manufacturing is going to make sophisticated, more advanced weaponry also readily available, particularly to violent extremist organizations and rival states, states like Iran or others, that the U.S. may currently enjoy an asymmetric advantage. Finally, um, the most concerning threat may involve... Um, the change to secure locations, which will face new, uh, more lethal threats, um, particularly in the form of uh, lone gunmen who can enter a, a secure facility, um, go, to, go through the normal security process, uh, go up to their desk, log into their email, download a digital design, send it to their office printer, uh, and within minutes have an assault rifle that will allow them to cause mayhem in a purportedly secure location. Um, so these cluster of threats we've kind of bundled together under this broad category of weapons proliferation, the security, personal security, the physical security threats that will obtain in the future as this technology matures. But we can also think more generally about um, other forms of threats, um, those having to do with economic insecurity and dislocation. Um, so as Troy discussed, more and more sectors and industries, products will be disrupted as this technology matures and develops. Um, and so we can think about some of the jarring effects of these changes over time as more sectors are disrupted. Um, first, we can think about how additive manufacturing will make tariffs and sanctions less effective. As states can now substitute for these goods or technologies that are restricted from them by various tariffs or sanctions, um, these tools, which have traditionally been a, a, a critical device in crisis bargaining in the international sphere, um, will become less effective over time. Um, similarly, and, and probably most immediately, we can imagine that as more sectors are disrupted, there are going to be more severe economic dislocations as greater shares of the workforce now are displaced and have to find um, new positions in this changing economy. And then finally, and potentially most concerning of all, um, additive manufacturing is going to encourage local production in new ways that has the potential to disrupt uh, global trends towards integration, exchange, and trade. Um, these basic forms of international relations have traditionally, historically been the bedrock of the international order and system, um, leading to the democratic peace as, as described. Um, we conclude our report by taking a step back and considering some p 
potential strategies that policymakers um, could consider to mitigate, if not prevent, these threats um, from obtaining in the future. Um, the first set of strategies involves threat prevention. So we can think about how um, policymakers can regulate um, the, the access to printers being uh, critically dependent on having registration so you can um, keep track of who has a device. Of course, this is going to be problematized by um, access to self-replicating de uh, devices. Um, we can similarly think about material controls, trying to track um, and keep control over rare or exotic raw materials, um, particularly materials that may be used in dirty bombs, things of this nature. And then finally, we can think about digital infiltration, more active means by which law enforcement or intelligence agencies may seek to disrupt violent extremists from taking use of this technology, potentially compromising these machines or their own digital designs. Um, unfortunately, we're not terribly sanguine about uh, the efficacy of these uh, specific measures. After all, um, bad actors are going to find ways to skirt these various um, strategies. And so instead, uh, policymakers may focus on attribution, holding these actors accountable for the misuse of this technology. Um, here we can think about, again, tracking of rare materials, um, particularly materials that have a distinct signature that one can use to say um, only these actors had access to this material. Um, similarly, we can think about printers um, actually encoding a unique signature into the construction of the product. Um, this, this would certainly work with a, a printer registration system that requires every object have some unique ID attached to it. Uh, finally, we can think about mitigation strategies. Uh, and in the report, we mostly focus on uh, mitigating the economic dislocation, specialized skills training for displaced workers, uh, particularly as more sectors are disrupted over time. Now, none of these policy recommendations are going to be particularly easy to implement. They're all filled with complicated trade-offs, um, but it's critically important that policymakers begin to address uh, these challenges today before it's too late. So is faster better? Has the increase in the volume and speed of information delivery led to better decisions? Is the speed of technological change so outpacing our ability to adapt that the costs may outweigh or at least compromise the benefits. To answer those questions, uh, our, research, our research team includes uh, Casey Bowskill. She's an anthropologist and health researcher. And Seifu Chande, whose PhD is in industrial engineering and operations, who works on network science, machine learning, and text mining. I think only at RAND will you see an engineer and an anthropologist take on a security question together. And they are now going to uh, tell us about the link between speed and security. So now we arrive at the most conceptual topic of the evening, but perhaps also the most relatable one. In fact, if there's one thing we can get people to agree on these days, it's that life feels like it's getting faster. But the fact that life's getting faster really isn't anything new. I mean, look no further than this photograph of the streets of Manhattan from a century ago where we had the last horse-drawn trolley alongside an electric streetcar. But if we look at sort of the iterations of uh, phases of acceleration throughout modern history, they've generally brought along with them major social disruptions. Let's think about it. So no printing press, no reformation, no social media, no Arab Spring. What do we need to know about this current phase of acceleration? What makes this phase of acceleration different? And how are we going to cope with the disruptions that it can engender? 
So we use speed as a heuristic or a representational aid that's kind of like a catch-all for accelerations across a whole host of domains, from things like communication to data sharing. And what we're focused on here is that speed can be measured empirically through miles per hour, friend requests per day, those sorts of things. However, it's really important to look at it through a subjective lens that looks at both the infrastructure and the government of that infrastructure to make sure going forward we have in place uh, proper ways to handle and mitigate speed. And before we go any further, I want to convince you all with a little bit of data, I am an engineer, that speed really is happening today. Here we have this graph that shows uh, consumer um, trends in America, household adoption rates across uh, five different technologies. On the x-axis, you have time and years. On the y-axis, you have the percent of the United States population that has adopted that particular technology. What you'll see very quickly is that electricity and telephone, two very complicated technologies that required a lot of infrastructure to develop, took several decades to, be, uh, to come to fruition for most Americans. As you move to the right, you'll see the personal computer, the internet, and then the smartphone, the one device that wraps all four of the preceding ones together, happen in less than a decade. So we take Seifu's engineering side, the tech side, and we couple it with the social side. And we can think about the fact that it's not just that these technologies are becoming more pervasive, really deeply powerful technologies, but that they're connecting us in ways that are unprecedented and over time and space like we've never seen before. In fact, early in the 90s, Rand developed a theory of social evolution to show that the entire globe was moving towards a network-based society of these loose ties of people and flows of ideas and products and additive manufacturing, and maybe we'll even see AI as part of our networks. Um, so... The, the catch here, though, is to think about the fact that these networks operate outside of traditional modes of surveillance and power. In other words, we're seeing a diffusion of power through these technologies, and that is where the concern lies, but also where the great opportunity lies as well through this connection. So in this project, we looked across a whole host of different technologies, and we selected several of them and created four different scenarios in the year 2040 that would represent various ways that the world might play out. First, I'd like to talk about this scenario here, where we have um, what we call my eye, brain, and me, where re uh, removable cognitive implants are readily available that allow for rapid human uh, learning and physical abilities. Um, as well as instantaneous mind messaging between users of the device. And what we're really looking at here is if we have a device embedded in our brain that can think and act faster than we can, who's really in control? Next, we moved on to this uh, scenario that we're calling um, what's mine is everyone's. And the prolifer in, in this scenario, the proliferation of technologies like artificial intelligence and 3D printing, um, as well as autonomous vehicles, has led to a culture where you can get whatever you would like immediately. And here we have pictures of Amazon now printing something very quickly for you. And we've moved from this capitalist society to a sharing economy. Thanks to, thanks to the proliferation of sharing apps like Uber exists for ride-sharing right now. 
And so we ask, if you have the ability to print something and use it just for the amount that you need it and then release it back and recycle it, what does it really mean to have belongings? How do you define yourself? Next, we arrive at what we call unnatural selection, whereby gene editing techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 have become so advanced uh, and, and pervasive in society that it's driving the speed or the pace of natural selection. One particular technique has been used to combat the upward trend of obesity, an issue that we hadn't yet addressed by 2040. But scientists are concerned when they realize that children are being born with the ability to keep fat at an ultra minimum, raising the question of whether or not a new human species has been created. Lastly, we arrive at a place to be. So about a century after initial prototypes for the Hyperloop are developed, they finally come to fruition among the eastern and western corridors of the United States. This, however, in turn, has uh, led to increased exposure to uh, pathogens, requiring that passengers go through biosurveillance every time they want to take the Hyperloop. In addition, commuters who race up and down uh, these chains of megacities on the eastern and western corridors have been left asking themselves whether or not they actually feel a sense of home anymore. So we took those four scenarios that we developed and wanted to see how various portions of America reacted. We were very specific in, what, in the places that we chose. We started with the New York Minute, or, uh, and then we went down to the uh, Big Easy, and finally over to San Francisco, the Tech Mecca. And we chose these places because we felt they represented different populations in America that would react differently. And what we found was that reactions to speed are really based on the context of where you live and the community that you live in. In New York, we found that people were very cautious and they were very concerned about making sure that everybody had equitable access to any benefits of speed. In San Francisco, we found that they were very confident. They wanted to move as fast as possible. They were speed evangelists. And finally, in New Orleans, we found that people were very skeptical. And they thought, I want to use this only as much as it helps me define who I am in my community and no more. But what this really tells us is that there is a whole host, an array of different reactions that exist. And the context is really important when you start to figure out how to govern properly, how to make sure you're maintaining a secure and safe place in America. You need to account for all of these different reaction types. Okay, so if we can't hit the brakes, right, how do we actually learn to start adapting to hyperspeed, especially given that this one is very different from things that we've seen in the past? First of all, we need to wrap our heads around the fact that these technologies are faster, they're more pervasive, and they're more widespread than ever before. There's great power in additive manufacturing and AI. Speed is the driving factor fueling all of that. Secondly, just like the idea of context matters, we have to start the conversation now. Let's start to think about what is the actual problem that we want to solve with these technologies of speed. Maybe it isn't going faster in between Los Angeles and San Francisco, right? Maybe the commute itself isn't really that much of an issue. Maybe it's more about how do we bring people into greater economic opportunities writ large, right? So designed to solve problems, not necessarily a priori to go faster. And that's hard to do, especially considering the fact that our society places great value on efficiency, convenience, and speed. Lastly, 
government is lagging dangerously behind, not only in terms of policy, but just in basic understanding of these technologies of speed. Government needs to see this as a double-edged sword. What does that mean? First of all, they need to figure out how to create good regulations surrounding these novel technologies and understand speed as a critical problem to security in the upcoming decades. Secondly, governments need to understand how to leverage speed in order to process information faster and govern smarter. So again, like I say, hitting the brakes is not an option, but understanding how to frame questions around speed so that we can strike the right pace is where we need to start. And from blockchain and Bitcoin to mental health and well-being, we have nine other possible scenarios here, and there's numerous more that we could explore. And we invite you to explore them as well. Thank you. So I'm going to start the conversation uh, with our panelists, and then we'll bring you all in. So you all have been working on Security 2040 for the past year. We've done workshops here in Santa Monica and Washington. We've engaged some of the top experts in technology and security, U.S. government officials, New York, you know, San Francisco, New Orleans. Casey even went to Austria, where actually speed is not happening, just in case <laughs> she found that out. Uh, and because we're RAND and we're focused on security, I, I, I got to ask you this question. I mean, what keeps you up at night when you're thinking about security in 2040? Ed, what keeps you up at night? <laughs> Isn't it obvious? <laughs> so I, I'd like to jump in if I could. I, I think what keeps me up most uh, right now is that I feel like nothing's private anymore. And... I remember being a kid and feeling like things were private, and maybe that's because I was a kid. I'm not sure. But definitely now I feel like whatever I do, no matter what, it's being tracked somehow. And as somebody who does a lot of data mining, I know it is. <laughs> One of the things that, that uh, concerns me that we didn't talk about so far here, but uh, some of you who have been watching the news in AI will be familiar with is, is this deep fakes. Has anybody seen, seen this? Deep fakes. It's the ability to make for these, these AI algorithms that, that can generate pictures or video or, or sound that sounds or looks exactly like whatever they're trying to make. And so there are videos out there now you can go watch where, where one person is speaking and moving their face and uh, in the opposite frame, Obama's voice and his face are making the same movements. And, and that, from an adversarial perspective, uh, is really dangerous and can tie in to all the way up to the extremes that we're talking about today. That can be a hugely destabilizing influence. We we might have some some hope that, that nation states won't won't do that uh, use that too much. Although I'm I'm concerned about that. But uh, the libraries and algorithms are openly available for that. They can be downloaded off of the internet uh, by any terrorist group or or uh, hacker. And there's also a related technology that basically makes it possible to make things that the AI algorithms can't classify as what they actually are. So a recent demo of this actually involved a 3D-printed turtle, another nice tie-in, mm -hmm. that they have the original turtle, which the, the image classifier classifies as a turtle. Then they made a slightly perturbed version of the turtle that is classified as a pistol or a rifle, rifle. from every angle. 
Yeah. So look up the video if you're interested. It's eerie. This is, this is six students at MIT. It's not it's not like a, a nation state level undertaking. Right. And so the same technology could be potentially used to hide things like, say, uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, production facilities and things like that. So, Andrew, can I pick up on this and actually pivot slightly away from your original question? Because I think... Some of the most interesting questions that we study as researchers are those that involve complicated trade-offs. And I think the reason for these projects, for the most part, I, I think, is that these are, these are technologies that have awesome potential to transform our lives, exciting potential. Seifu and I are in the D.C. office, and we have a colleague um, who was just telling me recently about how great it is that she can track her kids so easily and readily. Now, she has also told me um, that the first thing you do with your kids when they get to about four years old is you tar start talking to them about cybersecurity and all the measures they need to take. But she sees the real benefits hand in hand. And so, you know, I, additive manufacturing, AI, there's a reason why these are such fascinating questions to study. It's because for us in particular, for the additive manufacturing team, we had to focus really on the security threat. But at its core, the reason policymakers are going to be challenged is because the solutions to some of these threats, these challenges, um, may be worse than just living with the, the potential threat that they involve. I mean, overly regulating the growth of this technology could potentially have much more negative welfare effects. And it's just, it's difficult to answer at this time. Something that keeps me awake at night is not necessarily the technologies themselves, but the, the people who don't have access to them. I mean, most people, if you've got the, the money and the resources, you're going you're gonna to have the newest phone, you're going to get a, access to the next transformative technology. But because of the accelerating pace of technology, I think more and more people are losing access to figure out what's cutting edge and keep up with the, the current economy. Casey pointed out that the, the private sector is moving a lot faster and knows a lot more about the technologies that they're developing than the public sector does. And the private sector is really focusing on what, what new services can we provide? What new conveniences? And there's no one really thinking about the other side of what, what is the dangerous side of this technology? How can it hurt people? How can people use this to their advantage and make, it, make things worse for others? Um, in the next couple decades, we could see a lot more of these disruptive technologies that leave a lot of people behind. And there's not really a good way right now to make sure that the opposite side, the, the other side of the sword of the bad things that can happen are going to be mitigated while we're all enjoying the benefits that we get from our technologies. Well, and if, if I may play off that as well, um, just being the anthropologist, I'm fascinated by the fact that we are now sort of in this very interesting human technology assemblages everywhere. We're seeing this in the workplace, um, just in the ways that we interact on the streets and interact with each other through, through our phones. Uh, and I wonder if we are stepping away from the key factors that make us human, um, that make us strong in our connections to one another as humans. Um, and I think that it's critical that we gather people's stories um, as they are grappling with these new technologies and thinking about security um, so that we can sort of bring the human dynamic back to this and really ask ourselves, okay, is this, this doesn't have to be the future that we want to see if this, if this doesn't seem idyllic. So how, how again, to raise that, the point again, how do we... Um, designed to solve problems and, and really uh, bring everybody into this boat of, of security, if you will. So that's kind of what keeps me up at night is that we're losing, we're losing that human touch in all of this. It's not often that economists and anthropologists agree, but I'm going to <laughs> agree with Casey, actually. So the thing that I'm kind of most worried about is not only a human connection, but community. So, you know, and communities are important. There's increasing evidence that people feel more isolated today, and potentially this leads to some of this lone wolf attack and 
you know, people don't know their neighbors like they used to. And I think that the technology and the speed potentially accelerates this kind of trend of, of people feeling alone, not being connected, not being able to feel like they have this interpersonal relationships uh, that I think are the foundation for society. I have a question that relates to Mr. Putin's uh, comment at the beginning. I think he's on the right track. But I think he sort of missed uh, the real challenge, which is not maybe so much artificial intelligence, but the disruptive precursor, which will really drive it to the extreme, which is uh, quantum computing. And I'm wondering whether that is something that the panel has considered and what the ramifications are. I can consider some of them, and, and some of them fall, in fact, into the category of what should keep everybody up at night, which is I would think that between Russia, China, and the United States, there's probably an extraordinary amount of competition right now, probably not well advertised, that is going on. And the United States is probably well uh, into the lead on this through the national labs in terms of places like Sandia. Um, okay, we've got to uh, yeah. keep it short to get others in. So the question of quantum computing, uh, which yeah. I might add will be uh, a topic of another Security 2040 study down the road, but uh, let me put it to our panel. Yeah, I can I can speak to that a little bit. It's getting outside of my expertise a touch. I, I, I uh, before coming to RAND, was at Sandia National Labs doing non-conventional electronics, but not quantum computing. But we're working on that a little bit now here, and there's there's some challenges. So th there's a, a rapid progress in the number of qubits that are occurring in these devices, and we're, we're watching that pretty carefully. But um, it's it's not as simple as it was for Moore's law with with transistors with regular transistors because there. Uh, at least for for many decades, the the number of transistors that you had directly indicated how much power you had. The size of them as you shrunk them made them faster. W with quantum computing, there's another element that, that we need to be really cognizant of. That's the noise level, and and so um, if you as you build out more of these devices, they they interact in ways that add noise that decrease your ability to do quantum computations with them. So there's there's more than just having this phenomenal scaling that, that we're observing right now. There are still some some substantial challenges to work through. Um, but I agree with you, uh, and, and with the the people who are more expert in this topic than I am, they would agree with you also that. Uh, quantum computing will will have a, a, a strong impact in machine learning. That's probably where we'll feel it first. Uh, my uh, suspicion in the right now is that that's still um, a twenty forty timeline, and, and we'll see some of the issues that Putin was raising before we get to there with quantum computing. That that some of the AI applications will will will, will determine who who has the power going forward before we get to quantum computing at that scale. That that's that's. A partially informed opinion, but that's, that's where I feel. Which nuclear power seems to be farthest along in integrating AI into nuclear strategy? And if it isn't the U.S., how far behind may the U.S. be? Ed? Well, I think the, the first part of the, the question is like, well, to what extent should AI be integrated into nuclear strategies? So this is not necessarily a good thing just because it can be done. doesn't mean it should be done, nor does it, it would <laughs> – another state doing it being a sign that we should necessarily do it in response. The In the U.S., the, there is a considerable resistance to using these technologies for a lot of the nuclear strategic tasks. So the 
like the idea of like oh like let's like make autonomous like nuclear strategic platforms this is something that is generally not considered very attractive in the US for some reasons that I think are pretty sound the these new ru- systems that the Russians have announced so in particular the nuclear torpedo and the nuclear-powered cruise missile that Putin also announced at the beginning of last month, those need a substantial degree of autonomy in order to do the things that uh, they are advertised as doing. In the case of the torpedo, because it operates underwater, it's actually very difficult to communicate with it, and it's supposed to be going into hostile territory. So it basically needs to be able to make its own decisions, at least insofar as it can penetrate enemy defenses and reach its target. The... So in terms of the the willingness to endorse that sort of thing, it's like the Russians have definitely illustrated a a willingness to do it. The Chinese have said some things. That doesn't mean that the the systems are necessarily remotely there. But at the same time, that's not a sign that this is an attractive strategy that we should adopt. It's not at all obvious that uh, that we need to fight fire with fire in this case. Can I add one one subtle point that we discussed earlier today uh, is that it's – uh, if, if you're asking about putting AI or automation in the actual um, missiles or, or, or all of these other platforms that, that Edward just brought up, then, then the U.S. is probably a long way away. But, but there, there are places where AI can, can infiltrate this process that, that might be more subtle and might slip through uh, un, unrealized. If, you're, if you've got AI systems that are collecting and aggregating and analyzing your data and then you're making decisions based on that data, how much has it influenced your process? Given that we have limited ability to slow down speed AI and 3D printing, what can policymakers do to avoid some of the calamitous things warned against? Well, I think we start we start with those critical questions, right? So, you know, if, if we're seeing that these technologies are proliferating in in a way that is obscuring traditional lines of sight, if you will, um, and we can we can think of numerous examples, right? And, and Look no further than than Facebook, Cambridge Analytica. None of us, none of us should have been surprised at that. No one in government should have been surprised by that. And yet they were blindsided. So part of it is just this this massive shakeup that I think needs to happen in terms of um, uh, 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 thinking about what are the right questions that we need to ask. Although, as I say that, it's interesting because we had um, a, a top tier civil servant take part in these workshops, and he said that in the past it was okay. You had to figure out. Who are the key people from the tech industry who we need to ha- he needed to have at the table to explain what was going on? And now they don't even know where to turn, right? It's happening too fast. And the minute you ask the question, you have to be on to the next one. Um, but I think in general, starting with the fact that this is a massive problem um, for policymakers is, is going to be part of it. Another thing, too, is you can, you can learn how to leverage AI in terms of information processing uh, that may help with not only surveillance, but um, could help with, in terms of how do we tailor specific policies for each place. We can um, uh, devise faster strategies in that regard. I'll just add a a little plug for RAND. So we just scratched the surface on all these topics, but there's so much more research to do. And so if we want to have good, solid responses to all of these issues, there needs to be more research. I've heard that um, AI is going to be replacing a lot of jobs in the next five to seven years. So would there be, in your opinion, the panel, do you think that there would be a deep recession because a lot of these people thrown out of work from AI would then have to be retrained. And the crisis might be that some of these people might not be up to date on the latest technology. 
I mean, that, that's in part where we need to rethink education. I mean, I think then for the future generations, we are rarely going to see people who will stay in the same profession um, for their entire careers. So we need to think about being more agile. Um, and I think that actually this is a this relates to the last question in terms of policy, but um, agile in terms of, of the ways that we structure careers and the ways that we think about um, just uh, our education system more broadly. Um, but we can think about where is the need, where are the problems that we need to solve. And if people are going to be de- displaced by AI, there's certainly a, there's no shortage of, of train-up that we can do in terms of, of other jobs. That sounds Pollyannish, I understand. However, you know, I think we can start with um, of looking to where the need is and, and trying to open up um, new avenues and opportunities for people. And we can do it now because we know it's going to happen, right? So... I think it's kind of a, a good news, bad news story. We've talked about this a bunch. It's something that, that scares me. Historically, we had we had the Industrial Revolution closed down, and then and then a lot of people struggled for a long time, but they came out of the farms and into the schools. And so over over the long period, uh, that, that may be viewed as a benefit, maybe a similar thing will happen with AI. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you to the Security 2040 team for your presentation and insights, and thank you to everyone for participating. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.